So many of you know that Sarah and I have a dog named Maggie. And those of you who know Maggie, she's our golden retriever. Uh, you know that she's unbelievably sweet. She is, she's very sweet. She's very tender-hearted. She's very lovable. She loves people, loves other dogs. She's not that intelligent, but her sweetness kind of compensates for it. And you can even see her tender-heartedness in how she carries her shame. See, we don't have to actually discipline, discipline her. We just look at her and she melts. So Maggie, whenever she does wrong, you would think that we've like abused her, which we haven't. We've had her since she was a puppy. She's never been abused. Yet when she does something wrong, she just immediately just like melts in front of you. It's not uncommon for us to come home from work and us to be greeted by Maggie with a low head and a low tail wag. And we're like, oh no, what did you do? And she tries to kind of keep us away from the living room, but as we start making our way for the living room, she kind of slows down. And then we look, and the pillows that we've put to barricade her to keep from getting on the furniture have been like smushed down, and there's like a drool spot on it. And we're like, Maggie, and she just like ducks and hides. She carries her shame with her. And we see this even when uh, like things from, from a long time ago in our old house. She doesn't chew that often, but there was a few times she just, for whatever reason, decided to chew, and she... Uh, there was a spot on our door frame where she chewed and shredded and it's like it wasn't getting fixed so it was just there and a year or so later you could walk up to that spot and say Maggie what did you do and she would just like go on her back full submissiveness like oh no they saw it again and she just carries her shame with her when she fails and my guess is in all seriousness there's many of us that do the same thing that when we blow it in some way, when we fail in some way, we wear our shame and carry our shame with us. And tonight, we're going to look at a man named Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, who royally blew it. He failed miserably, and he carried some shame with him, and we're going to see how Jesus treated him after he royally messed up and failed. So that's where we're going tonight. We'll be in John chapter 21. It's the last chapter in the Gospel of John. And so if you've been with us, you know for this past year, we've been walking through John's Gospel. And as we've walked through John's Gospel, what we've seen that is John's whole point in writing this is so that we would come and see Jesus, that we would believe in him, and in believing in Jesus, we would find life. In fact, he tells us that point blank multiple times, and then specifically at the end of chapter 20, he wraps up the, the chapter by telling us this truth that he wrote this so that we would believe in Jesus, and through believing, we would find life. And it's this nice and neat and wrapped up thing, and you would think the chapter would end there, but then he writes chapter 21, and you're like, why would he do that? But I think what we're going to see is chapter 21 really is a picture of the implications of the gospel. Like, what comes from believing in Jesus is played out in chapter 21. And so, we're going to read chapter 21, but before we do, I think it's important for us to know a little bit about Peter. Because all the disciples are there in chapter 21, but in many ways, Peter takes center stage. This thing is aimed right at Peter. And so, we're going to see this this. Uh, story take place and Peter just be at the very center of it. So it's important for us to kind of have an understanding, okay, who is Peter? Now, Peter in his former life before meeting Jesus by vocation, by trade, was a fisherman. 
That was his job. He fished. And when we first find Peter, he'd been fishing all night long and hadn't caught a single thing. And if that's your job, if that's your livelihood, that can create some anxiety in you. That if your job is to catch fish so that you can survive and you don't catch any fish after fishing all night, that's a big deal. And so he's fished all night, hadn't caught any fish. And then Jesus comes up and there's a crowd wanting to hear him teach. And so Jesus asks if he can get into Peter's boat. And he steps into Peter's boat and kind of pushes off from the shore a little bit and begins to teach. And he hears, Peter hears that Jesus' words are unlike anyone else. They carry some authority to them. And after he teaches, he looks at Peter and says, hey, sit your net down in this spot here. And Peter's like, well, we've fished all night long, so, but whatever, you're the guy who just randomly stepped in the boat. I'm sure you know what you're talking about. And so he sits the net down in the water and all of a sudden it starts filling with fish, so many that it's like threatening to tip over the boat. And Peter immediately recognizes that this is no mere man standing in my boat. This is not just a normal everyday guy, that this is someone who carries the authority and the power of God, that this is God here standing in my boat. And Peter falls to his knees and says, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. When face to face with Jesus, he's broken because of his sin and he falls to his knees and he says, you need to get out of this boat because this is not good for me because I'm a sinner and I know you're someone that's sent from God. But then Jesus says, hey, do not fear. Follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of man. I'm going to give you a new vocation, a new calling on your life. I know you're a sinful man, but don't, don't be afraid. Come and follow me. And so Peter does that. Peter follows Jesus. And we learn pretty quickly that Peter is somewhat of a leader among the other disciples. He's in Jesus' inner circle, his, his trusted people, the ones who see just the most intimate moments of Jesus' life that share in things that some of the other ones didn't get to share in. He's, he's pretty loud. He's pretty vocal. He's pretty impulsive. He's someone who's going to get things right, and when he gets them right, they're going to be really right. But he's someone, when he gets them wrong, he gets them really, really wrong. Some of you know those people. They're impulsive, they're loud, and they make their presence known, and sometimes they do things right, and you're like, that's awesome, and sometimes they do it wrong, and you're like, it's okay, maybe their good qualities outweigh themselves. But Peter is someone who gets it right. When he gets it right, it's good. When he gets it wrong, it's bad. We see him doing things like when Jesus is walking on the water, him saying, hey, call me out of the boat onto the water. And Jesus calls him out of the boat, and, Jesus, and Peter steps onto the water and walks on water. But then in the very next moments, he sees the, the wind and the waves and the storm, and he is afraid, and he sinks. And Jesus grabs him and says, oh, you have little faith. We see him when Jesus says, hey, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're some other prophet. And Peter says, no, 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 you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is to come, the Christ. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, exactly. On this proclamation, I'm building my kingdom. But in the very next set of verses, we find Jesus talking about his death and how he must go and how he must die. And Peter says, no, 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 Jesus, we're not going to let you die. And Jesus rebukes him and says, no, get behind me, Satan. See, when he gets it right, he's right, but he gets it wrong pretty often. And his biggest failure comes at the end of Jesus' life. After he and his disciples had the Passover meal together. 
Jesus says, hey, someone is going to betray me. One of you, one of our friends is going to betray me. And he starts talking after the meal saying, hey, y'all are all going to scatter. You're going to leave me. You're going to abandon me. And then Peter, of course, pipes in and he's like, no, 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 Jesus. These guys, they might leave you, but I'm not going anywhere. In fact, Jesus, I would die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And so the night starts to play out. Jesus gets arrested. Peter, again, coming to his rescue, pulls his sword and tries to hit a man, and he apparently is a bad shot, and he hits a guy's ear and cuts his ear off, and Jesus says, no, stop. That's not what my kingdom's about. But when they arrested Jesus, they took him away, and Peter starts following closely, like he said he would. He and John are kind of following along. But while Jesus is being questioned and, and beaten, Peter's hanging out, and they start saying, hey, wait a minute. Aren't you with that Jesus guy? He's like, no, 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 that's not me. He's like, someone else comes up. Hey, wait a minute, no, aren't you one of his followers? He says, no, that's not me. And it comes to a point where he's warming himself around a charcoal fire, and they're all sitting there with other people, and they say, wait a minute, no, you talk like one of his disciples, and to prove that he wasn't one of them, he starts cussing like a sailor, swearing an oath, saying, no, I don't know this man. And when he does that, the rooster crows, and he remembers the words of Jesus. And in, in one of the Gospels, it actually records that Peter looks up, and he catches the eyes of Jesus in that moment, sees the face that's already been beaten and bloodied, and it says it breaks his heart. He's grieved to his heart. He leaves weeping because he's just rejected the man he said he would die for and it's a moment of just epic failure. Jesus would then go and be crucified. He would die a criminal's death on the cross, but then what we talked about a few weeks ago in the Gospel of John is that he doesn't stay dead. He rises from the grave, and when uh, Mary goes to look at the tomb, she sees that there's no one there. The stone's been rolled away, and so she runs back and tells the disciples, and Peter and John take off towards the tomb, and then, of course, John gets a jab and is like, yeah, I ran him to the tomb because he's not a good runner. And so he gets to the tomb, sees it's not there, and they're puzzled, wondering what's going on. And then later in another gospel, we see that the angels come to the women and say, hey, you need to go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm going to meet them in Galilee. See, it specifically mentions, tell the disciples, but he he gets a special call out there because, again, the other ones have scattered and abandoned him, but Peter's epically failed. Not only did he abandon him, he flat out denied him on multiple occasions. And so Jesus says, hey, you tell Peter that I'm, I'm risen and that I'm going to meet him. We see he actually does come and appear to his disciples on two different occasions, and then that leads us into where we are in our passage in John chapter 21. And so what I want to do for us tonight is I want to read through John chapter 21 and then talk about this and say, okay, what does this mean for us at the end of it? And so I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, go ahead and get those out. Uh, I'll be reading now the English Standard Version, and I would encourage you to open up and follow along with us, and we'll just kind of read these verses and pick it apart and see what it says for us. So starting in John 21, verse 1, it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, 
Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So Peter, he says, hey, I'm going fishing, and the other disciples go with him, and, and some have pointed to that to say, okay, this may have been Peter going back to his old life, his old vocation. Like, it's not just like when me and you say we're going fishing. This is like his old livelihood. And I, I don't know if it's that, because I think what we see here is Peter's with the disciples. He's waiting for Jesus, so I don't think he's abandoning the disciples, but I also don't think it's insignificant that he says, hey, I'm going fishing. He, he may have been going to say, okay, well, I failed as a disciple, but at least maybe I can produce something here. At least maybe I can contribute a little bit. I'll go, I'll catch fish so we can have fish, we can sell them, we can eat them, and we'll be good. So I might have failed as a disciple, but at least I'm a fisherman. But then they get out on the water, they fish all night long, and they don't catch a single thing. So not only is he a failure as a disciple, but the thing that he knew he could do, fishing, he was a failure at as well. So he fishes all night, he catches nothing, and then it says this in verse 4, Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. So it says they fished all night into the morning, and that morning, Jesus stands on the shore, but he's off kind of in the distance. They don't recognize it's Jesus, and he says, hey, hey, kids, hey, children, have you caught any fish? Talk about the blow to the pride of a fisherman who's fished all night. He says, hey, have you caught any fish? And they're like, no. He's like, hey, um, have you tried? Do it on the right side. And they're like, oh my gosh, okay, whatever, let's do it. And so they throw their nets to the right side, and there's so many fish that they can't even bring it in. They can't even haul it in. And then it says in verse 7, that that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So, as soon as this happens, John, he gets it. He's like, this is Jesus. And it says, I don't know if you call this, he turned to Peter. There's a direct communication there. It's, he's talking to Peter, says, hey, Peter, it's the Lord, it's Jesus. And then when he recognizes and he sees that this is Jesus, it says he put on his clothes to jump into the water. It seems ridiculous, right? He says he got dressed and then threw themselves in the water. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're going swimming, you're probably not throwing back on your clothes to then jump into the water. And so you're like, what in the world is happening here? What R.C. Sproul will point out is, is G, or Peter at this point, what it says in the language, he's essentially naked. He essentially has no clothes while he's fishing, and he puts them on, and this draws us back. It kind of pings in our mind another instant early in Scripture where you see Adam and Eve in the garden, and they've sinned before God. They've eaten the fruit, 
and their eyes are open to their nakedness. And they're ashamed before the eyes of God. And so to hide their shame before the eyes of God, they try to clothe themselves in fig leaves to hide themselves. And so here you've got Peter who's aware that Jesus' eyes are here on him. And so he throws on his clothes. He flails into the water. And I, I love, again, the jab from John. He's like, yeah, he threw himself in the water and swam to the shore. But the rest of us, we just kind of paddled in because we're only 100 yards out. <laughs> it's like, seriously, God, why are you doing this? But Jesus, or Peter threw himself into the shore, and he went to meet him. And we're like, okay, what is happening here? But what you've probably picked up on is this doesn't seem completely new, right? See, what's happening is Jesus is aimed right at Peter's heart right now. Because what's happening is he's recreating the time he first called Peter. The moment he first believed and turned and followed Jesus, Jesus has now recreated here for Peter. Peter, who was wondering maybe his status as Jesus' disciple, wondering what Jesus was thinking, Jesus now handcrafts this miracle as if to say, hey, do not be afraid. You're still mine. You're still mine. And he draws his mind back to the moment he first followed Jesus. It goes on to say in verse 9, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So they get to the shore, and Jesus is sitting there waiting with breakfast. He's got some fish there, some bread there. And he says, hey, go get some of your fish. Come, come eat breakfast with me. And so as he gets there, I want you to, to notice that. Jesus doesn't need their fish. He's already got the fish for them. In fact, he invites them to bring their fish, but he doesn't need their fish. And even if he did use just their fish, remember, he's the only reason why they caught those fish. Jesus does not need what they bring, but he invites them to bring it anyways. He says, come, I want to eat breakfast with you. And Peter goes and he goes, it says he goes and he hauls in the fish. He brings them ashore, as if maybe he's trying to, to say, oh, I've got to earn back some intimacy with Jesus. Maybe if I just do enough, maybe it will just make me stand in a little bit better graces and cover some of that failure I've had. And so he goes, he hauls them all in, and says there's 153 of them. Theologians have wondered for years what that symbolic may be, but in reality it may have just been the disciples were like, wow, this is a record-breaking catch. Let's count these fish. It was 153. And so they put that in there. It's a lot of fish. But he brings it to Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, let's have breakfast together. And it's hard to miss and, and not think of this imagery surrounding fish and bread in Scripture, that the disciples had been with Jesus when he fed a multitude of people. In fact, he used them to feed a multitude using just a few fish and some bread. 
Or you think of when Jesus says, hey, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will hunger no more. And then here he is giving them bread. Or you think of the moments before he died in the Passover Seder when he says, this is my body, breaking a piece of bread, saying, broken for you. And now he's sharing that meal with his disciples. He goes on in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to them a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So he's sitting there with Jesus. They'd finished breakfast. And then Jesus on three occasions saying, Simon, son of John, using his full name here. Do you love me more than these? Now, the these is a little ambiguous. Is, is maybe he pointing to the fish or is he holding the fish saying, do you love me more than these fish? Indicating maybe, do you love me more than your vocation, your past life? Or it could be in reference to the disciples, which that to me seems like the best option because Peter earlier had said, hey, they might fall away, but I'm not going to. And so Jesus on three occasions, do you love me, Peter? He says, yes. Yes, you know I love you. And on the third time, he says, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. He's grieved to his heart. He says, feed my sheep. So what's he doing here? He's aiming right at Peter's heart again. See, he's already recreated the moment of his first call. But now he's recreating his greatest failure. On three occasions, the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter denies Jesus. He forsakes him. And a little detail also shows us this. I told you that he was around a charcoal fire here, here with his disciples. There's only two occasions in the New Testament where that particular fire is mentioned. It's in this one, and guess where the other one was? When Peter denied Jesus, he was warming himself around a charcoal fire. And so Jesus has recreated the moment of Peter's biggest failure. And so we ask, why? Why does he bring up his greatest failure? Is it so that he can add insult to injury? Is it so he can heap guilt and shame onto Peter? No. He brings it up so that he can restore him. How do we know this? Because of the direction Jesus points. He doesn't point backwards, he points forward. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, do you love me? Oh, you do? It sure didn't seem like it a few days ago. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Really? Because you said you'd die for me, but you folded pretty quick like a lawn chair. What's, what's up with that? He doesn't point backwards. He points forwards. Do you love me? I know you do. Feed my sheep. 
you're still called to be a shepherd of my people. I'm still calling you to, to pastor and shepherd my people. He points forward. He brings up the moment of his greatest failure, and it hurts. But it's not pain to punish him and to hurt him just for the sake of hurting him. It's pain meant to restore. I think of when um, I was playing football and my teammate at practice made a tackle and he gets up and his finger was pointed the other way. It was pointed in a direction it shouldn't be pointed in. So what's he do? He looks at it and then he immediately puts it behind him because he's like, I don't want to look at that anymore. And he runs straight to the trainer. And when he got to the trainer, he showed the trainer and he's like bouncing up and down like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he's like, I got to put it back. And so he grabs his finger. He says, hey, on the count of three, one, two, and popped it right back in place. And it hurt really, really bad. But let me ask you this. Was the trainer doing that just to be a jerk and just to hurt him? No. He says, I've got to grab this and it's going to hurt but it's not pain for the sake of just me being evil. It's pain for the sake of healing. I've got to grab this. We've got to address this. That's what we see here with Jesus. He puts his hands on the raw, open wound of Jesus, and it hurts, or of Peter, and it hurts. It's painful for him. It grieves him, but he's not doing it just for the sake of harming him. He's doing it for the sake of restoring him, of healing him, and healing his wounds. He says, I know about you. I know about your failure. And I still want you. I'm still calling you. I'm still using you. I know all things. And then in that last verse, that seems a little bit weird, but I'm saying like, when you're young, you're going where you want to go. When you're old, you're, you're not. They're going to lead you someplace. What he's saying is, I know you and I know your future. I've got great plans for you, Peter. Where at once you, you fell away, you're still my disciple. And you're going to actually boldly follow me because I know these things about you. You're going to be faced again with the opportunity to deny me or to go in boldness for my name. You're going to have the opportunity to die for me just like you said you would. And Peter, you're going to do it. You're going to glorify me. I'm still using you. I'm still calling you. You are still mine, and I have a purpose. And so, Peter, follow me. He invites him to follow him. In the last verses of the chapter, we won't read them, they then go for a walk. And what, what an incredible picture it is. They've just had breakfast with Jesus. Now he says, hey, let's go for a walk. And they're walking with Jesus, and John is a few steps behind. And then Peter, for whatever reason, points back. He's like, hey, what about him? whether it's insecurity or whatever, leading him points like, but what are you going to do for John? And Jesus says, what's it to you? <laughs> he said, if I want John to stay until I come back, then he's going to do it. You just follow me. Don't worry about what I have for him. You follow me, Peter. And then John has a little comment about that's how the rumor spread, that I wasn't going to die, but he said, if I wanted him to, that's not what happened. And he said, oh, and by the way, this is the disciple that's writing this book. And there's if we were to write everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books to fill, there'd be so many, it would overflow the world. But what we see here is, is Jesus grabs Peter's greatest pain and he restores him and sends him in light of that grace. So what, do, what does this mean for us? What do we do with this? What's our step from this? First, we need to understand 
is we must be grieved over our sin. Our sin should break our hearts. Our sin should break us. We have to understand that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has failed and continue to fail, and this sin brings death. And for us to not see this sin and to not be broken by this sin is for us to not see our need for a Savior, is to not see our need for Jesus. For us to not see sin and see our need for Jesus is for us to stand before God condemned. That's what John says. He says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Son of God. See, seeing the fullness of our sin and the weight of our sin and being broken of our sin leads us to a place to see that we have a great need for salvation. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. When he was first called, Jesus steps into his boat and he sees that it's Jesus and he's overwhelmed by the weight of his sin and he's broken before Jesus and he says, depart from me, I'm a sinner. But there is good news in scripture. Something that Peter would write later in 1 Peter 5, 5, which is incredible that he writes this, something that's echoed all throughout scripture. He says, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So yes, we see our sin. We see the weight of our sin. We are broken over our sin, but then we turn our eyes and we see the loving kindness of God. We see his mercy demonstrated through Jesus who came and moved towards us. And as we see Jesus, we believe in who he is and what he's done on the cross, believe that God raised him from the dead, and as we believe in him, we find forgiveness. We find life. He says, give me your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. And that's why John on the first pages of his gospel says in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's why John in the very beginning of that verse I just read in John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. See, this is where some of you are. This is your starting point. You've never had a point in your life where you've been genuinely broken over your sin. And so the call for you tonight is to see your sin, see the weight of your sin, be broken over your sin, but then in the same breath, turn and see Jesus and see the love and the mercy of God and turn from your sin and trust in him, believe in Jesus and find forgiveness and find life. But here's the thing, once you've done this, as many of you have, we still continue to sin. We still, at times, fall away. We still, at times, fail. And sometimes this failure is, is massive. So what do you do when you failed miserably? We start back just like we did at the beginning, and we're broken over our sins. Our sins should break our hearts and some of you need to hear that because you were unbothered by your sin. You were flippant towards your sin. Eh, it's not a big deal. You need to understand that our sin should break us. It should break our hearts. 
Sin should not sit well with the follower of Jesus because follower of Jesus, above all else, know the penalty that comes from sin is because it's their sins that crucified their Savior. Our sins should not sit well with us. It should break us. And in fact, that's one of the biggest indicators that we have the Holy Spirit in us is because when we have the Holy Spirit in us, he, he highlights and reveals the sinful parts of our hearts. But as we see the fullness and the weight of our sin, we in the same breath turn and see the loving mercy and the grace of Jesus. See, here's the problem. Some of you are very, very aware of your sin and are broken over your sin, but you are blind to the grace and the love of Jesus. You are sit, sitting in your brokenness and in your shame, and you're not raising your eyes to see the love and the grace of Jesus. You're so weighed down with shame and guilt that you wear it like a weighted blanket that gets heavier and heavier, that as you lay down your head at night, it's hard for you even to sleep because you feel like your guilt is weighing you down and driving you through your bed. You feel like God is frustrated with you, like he's disappointed in you, like he's mad at you, like you're disqualified from doing the work of the kingdom. You need to hear me say this. Absolutely not. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is absolutely no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul tells us in Romans. He doesn't say, well, there's mostly no condemnation in Christ Jesus, so long as you stay within the parameters of these sins, but as soon as you step out of those and you have this big failure, eh, there's some condemnation. Or so long as you don't sin a lot, there's no condemnation. He says, no, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Follower of Jesus, you cannot lose the love of God. You are fully known and you are fully loved by God. You have the fullness of his love resting on you and there's nothing you can do to lessen that love. You cannot be loved more than you are right now. There is no more love left to give. It is all the love is resting on you and there's not a thing you can do to lose that love. You are fully known and fully loved by God. And so you think that Jesus is mad and disappointed with you, that he's frustrated with you, but what he wants to do is he wants to aim at your heart just as he did at Peter's and remind you of his love, remind you that you are his child, remind you of the calling on your life. You think that you've got to earn some sort of uh, intimacy back with Jesus, and he's sitting there, and he's got breakfast already prepared for you. He said, come and eat with me. Come and walk with me. That's how you need to see Jesus. Follow Jesus. You don't need to look at him and think, oh, he might be mad at me. I don't know. No, you look at Jesus with the softness and the gentleness and the grace that he has that says, hey, come and let's have breakfast together. Let's talk about this. Come walk with me. He's aiming at your heart, and he's trying to say, I know you've failed. And I know what you've done, but you need to understand you do not need to be afraid. My grace is sufficient for you. My blood has covered every single sin that you've ever done, that you ever will do. You are still mine, and I'm still using you. Now, I'm not trying to minimize God's view of sin, 
Make no mistake, God has a fierce wrath burning hot towards sin. But he has a fierce love for his children. And the cross is the convergence of his wrath and his love, of his justice and his mercy. That the cross is where he poured out his wrath on sin and he pours out his grace on his followers. And so see the weight of your sin and be broken by it. But remember what the Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs says, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Be broken by your sin, but then see the loving mercy of Jesus. Be grieved by your sin, but remember that godly grief, what Paul tells us, is meant to lead us to repentance. That the grief that we experience is meant to drive us to the feet of Jesus. Any kind of grief and brokenness over your sin that leads you away from God, that makes you shrink back, that makes you hide and recoil from him, that tries to strap itself to you and stay with you, is not grief from God. Godly grief always, dri always drives you to the feet of Jesus. And there at the feet of Jesus, you hear him say, do not fear, you are mine. Follow me. Go in grace and in purpose. And when you see the weight of your sin, and your offense against the king of all kings. But then you see that king sitting there making you breakfast and inviting you in to intimacy with him. It will drive your heart to worship. It drives your heart to say, what kind of king is this? What kind of king dies for his enemies? What kind of king offers relationship to rebels? Only King Jesus does that. And it's meant to drive us to worship him more and more. So just wrapping up for us, some of you in here, you've got far too small of a view of sin. Sin is just, eh, no big deal. You are not broken over your sin. You don't see it as a big deal. What you need to do tonight is be broken over your sin. You should be grieved over your sin. But in that grief, you should turn your eyes to King Jesus. Others of you, you see your sin, and you see the weight of your sin, but you're not seeing Jesus. You've got your eyes looked down in shame and guilt, and you need to hear tonight that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Shame has no place in your heart. Be grieved over your sin, yes, but then let that drive you to the gracious, kind, and compassionate, merciful King Jesus that bled and died for you. And then go in grace. Hear him say to you, child, do not be afraid. You are mine. Come and follow me.